today's episode of Health Tree for AML Radio, a show that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Katie Braswell. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Bristol Myers Squibb, for their support of this Health Tree for AML radio show. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention a few upcoming events. On September 30th at 12 p.m. Central, I will be doing a radio show with Dr. John Reagan of Lifespan Cancer Institute at Rhode Island Hospital about immunotherapy options for AML patients who relapse after stem cell transplant. He will discuss his clinical trial looking at whether the drug gemtuzumab followed by an infusion of blood cells called leukocytes from a donor can stimulate the immune system to potentially fight AML. It will be an exciting and informative hour-long discussion, and you can call into the show live to ask Dr. Reagan your questions at the end. Also, on October 25th at 2 p.m. Central, I will be hosting a radio show with Dr. James Blatchley of the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at Ohio State, who will be giving us an overview of the current landscape of AML clinical trials so we can get a sense of what's being studied and what types of new treatments appear to be promising. We will have more information about both of these upcoming radio shows posted this week on our website, and you will be able to register for them at healthtree.org slash AML slash community. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Manis a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you're ready to ask your question. Now on to today's show. Treatment for newly diagnosed older AML patients is improving dramatically. We've always thought of the standard of care being 7 plus 3 intensive chemotherapy, and if someone could not tolerate that due to their age, health status, or other medical conditions, then there wasn't much else left to offer them. Fortunately, there have been many new drugs recently approved for older individuals, and researchers continue to try to look for new therapies and new combinations of these drugs to better serve these patients. In today's show, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Gabriel Manis with us from the Stanford Cancer Institute in California. We are so pleased to have you here with us on the show today, Dr. Manis. Before we get started, let me provide an introduction for you. Dr. Gabriel Manis completed his medical degree at the University of California Davis School of Medicine and did his internal medicine residency and hematology oncology fellowship at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center. Dr. Manis is now an attending physician for both the Outpatient Adult Hematology Clinic and the Inpatient Adult Hematology Unit at Stanford University Medical Center. He is also an Assistant Professor of Medicine for the Division of Hematology at Stanford. Dr. Manis is board certified in hematology and oncology. His research efforts focus on three principal areas, including identifying novel molecular and genetic markers as predictors of outcome, and as therapeutic targets in patients with acute leukemia, advancing new immunotherapeutic approaches for the treatment of acute leukemia, and evaluating the role of early advanced care and end-of-life planning in patients who undergo hematopoietic cell transplantation. He currently serves as principal investigator for several AML-focused clinical trials. Thank you, Dr. Manis, for joining us today. Thank you, Katie. It's my pleasure to be here. I think this is a great thing you guys are doing. Uh, Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Um, Let's go ahead and jump into our discussion. So um, I'd like to start by having you describe the overall treatment landscape for older adults with AML. Can you talk about the changes that have happened over the years in treating these individuals? 
Sure. You know, I think, you know, to step back a little bit, just AML in general is um, is one of the most common leukemias in adults. And, you know, it tends to be more common as people get older. So the average age at diagnosis is around 70. Um, so while people of all ages can get AML, it, it, it tends to be more common in older adults with more than half of people being diagnosed when they're over the age of 60. And as you mentioned in the introduction, um, sort of the standard treatment for, uh, for, for aggressive cancers, and, and AML is, is, is definitely considered an aggressive cancer, um, sort of the, the historic standard has been to use sort of high-dose chemotherapy, kind of a, you know, fighting fire with fire approach. Um, and so for younger patients, those in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, we use a combination of drugs called 7 plus 3, which is seven days of a, of, uh, of a drug called cytarabine and three days of another type of drug, typically donorubicin or idorubicin. And um, that's sort of the sort of nuclear approach where um, we give those two chemotherapies. It wipes out all of the bone marrow, and we hope that when the bone marrow grows back, that what grows back is all good stuff. And um, that approach typically requires patients to stay in the hospital for a month. Um, and as you, as you might imagine, there, there's the potential for a lot of different side effects. And so that hasn't been really an option for the majority of patients who are newly diagnosed with, with acute myeloid leukemia. Um, in the early 2000s, um, a class of drugs called the hypomethylating agents emerged, um, and that really includes two different drugs, azacitidine and dicitabine, which actually work in a very different way um, and, have, uh, and have fewer side effects than the sort of standard um, 7 plus 3 high-intensity approach. And so um, up until, I would say, just a couple years ago, the standard of care for older patients with AML had been treatment with, with one of the hypomethylating agents, either azacitidine or, or decitabine. So it sounds like focusing on the development of treatment options for older adults specifically is really important um, because of this very harsh sort of sort of standard of, of treatment. Um, are there any other things you could elaborate on when it comes to why focusing on research for older adults with AML? Um, is, a, is a really important area that, that needs to be looked at more. Yeah, I, you know, um, it's in part because most AML patients are, are older. Um, and so, you know, there's a huge need for treatments that, that are not as toxic as, as the high-dose chemotherapy approaches. You know, as we, as we age, our bodies, um, our bodies accumulate damage, uh, whether we like it or not. And, you know, most people, when they get to their 60s or 70s, they have other issues. They have heart problems, lung problems, diabetes, um, things that can make it even more challenging to tolerate uh, various types of, of chemotherapy. Um, when we look at these hypomethylating agents, these are, um, these are lower-intensity chemotherapy medicines. And so, you know, when I say lower-intensity, um, what do I mean? So, the, the sort of high-dose traditional chemo drugs that we think of that, you know, we see on TV that people get for breast cancer, lung cancer, that kind of thing, you know, that we associate with nausea, vomiting, hair loss, um, 
you know, those drugs work by, uh, by directly damaging DNA in the cancer cells. And so, so it actually um, causes direct death of cancer cells, um, but it's not specific to the cancer cell. So there's, there is some collateral damage, and that's why people lose their hair because it also affects hair cells. That's why people um, get sick to their stomach because it can affect the, the stomach and the, the intestines. And so these um, drugs that are in the class of hypomethylating agents, they actually work in a very different way where, um, you know, their, their, main, their main mechanism of action is not directly to kill cancer cells, but they actually change the signal that the cancer cells send. So, um, so by, this, uh, by this mechanism of hypomethylation, it, it actually changes the methylation of the DNA. And, and cells use methylation as a way of sort of flagging certain genes to either turn on or off. And so um, these drugs actually just put different flags on the DNA so that the message that is transmitted changes. And so, you know, because we're not directly killing cancer cells, these are much easier to tolerate. Um, so that, you know, was one huge advance with, the, with this new class of drugs, which now, of course, is not so new. Um, the, the problem specific to older patients with AML who are getting these drugs is that when you look at the big studies where they looked at either azacitidine or, or, or dicitabine as a single agent, meaning, meaning used by itself, um, only about 20, 30% of patients went into remission. Um, and uh, that means that 70 or 80% of patients didn't go into remission, which I would say is really not an adequate treatment um, if, you know, you're a patient listening to your doctor telling you what your chance of response is. And so um, as a single agent, it was a, it's been a pretty meager response rate. The responses also can take a while. So, you know, most responses don't occur until after three or four months. So it's a long time to wait before you know if something's going to work or not. And then, um, you know, even when it does work, um, the survival for patients that are treated with these drugs as a single agent is still only in the eight to 10 month range. And so, um, you know, I would argue that this is, you know, totally inadequate uh, in terms of the treatments for older patients with, with AML. And so that's why it's been exciting over the last couple of years to see the landscape start to change. Absolutely. Yeah, you gave a great overview of what hypomethylating agents are and how they work. And you mentioned two names. You mentioned bucytidine and azacitidine. Are those our two hypomethylating agents or do we have others? Those are currently the two agents out there. Um, they are, um, you know, I would argue more or less interchangeable. Um, they've, they've never really been studied head to head, but in a lot of studies that have done sort of indirect co comparisons, it seems like they're, they're just about the same in terms of how effective they are. Um, there are some slight differences. Uh, uh, azacitidine is, is typically given for seven days uh, out of every month. So a cycle we, we consider a 28-day or four-week cycle. So the azacitidine has to, repeat, has to be repeated for seven days out of every four weeks. Um, it can be given either through an IV uh, 
or it can be given as a shot under the skin. Um, the, uh, whereas decitabine is given for five days out of every 28-day cycle. And uh, up until just a little while ago, there was only an IV formulation of it. So is it mostly up to the doctor and whichever one they're more comfortable with working with? Or do, do they really take into account the schedule that you were talking about when choosing between the two? Um, I think it's mostly a comfort issue. Um, I think around the world, the use of azocytidine tends to be more common. Um, here at Stanford, we tend to use decitabine more commonly, in part because of the schedule and in part because, you know, I think there's probably um, not much of a difference between the two drugs. And so for patients, um, spending um, less time Seeing me, I think, is always is always preferable. So we we um, we tend to do the the five day instead of the seven day azacitidine. But um, but I think it's really up to the preference of the of the center. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you have a newly diagnosed patient, how do you decide between going the route of intensive chemotherapy or using hypomethylating agents? Gosh, that is a tough question. We could probably spend the whole hour talking about that. Um, you know, it's, it, it's unfortunately, um, you know, often not based in, in a lot of science. So we, we talk about fit versus unfit. And, you know, the, the factors that go into that, age obviously is an important one. And I think, um, you know, increasingly it's, it's, it's accepted that around 75 years old, um, you know, anything above 75 or so, you know, no matter how good a shape you're in, that's, that's probably, you know, considered unfit for intensive chemotherapy. But certainly there are a lot of people under the age of 75 who um, may also not be fit for intensive chemotherapy. And some of the things we look for are heart function and lung function, how the kidneys are working, how the liver's working. Um, you know, some of these are things we can we can uh, uh, glean versus based on just basic lab tests. Um, sometimes we'll do lung function tests, um, uh, an ultrasound of the heart to see how the heart is squeezing. Um, so looking at um, you know various markers of organ function is important. Um, it's also important to assess just how how active a patient is. You know, are they able to get around and do all their daily activities or you know, do, do they need assistance with um, with mobility or other tasks? Um, so there's a whole range of things that we will look at to sort of make this decision in terms of what is the, the safest and most effective treatment option for a patient. Definitely sounds like that could be a full episode on its own, like you said. <laughs> so a lot, it sounds like that goes into it. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it, it takes experience. Um, you know, there, there's unfortunately not sort of a sort of calculator you can just plug things into. There, there have been various attempts to, um, to devise things like that, tools that, um, that doctors can use. Um, but, you know, either they're cumbersome to, to implement um, or they don't capture the full story. And so part of it just takes experience knowing um, – sort of who is best going to be able to tolerate what. Mm -hmm. Sounds like seeing 
a doctor who sees AML day in and day out has that type of clinical experience and clinical expertise to really be able to help make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's that's sort of off topic here, but I do think for any patient with AML, um, you know, it is a rare enough type of cancer that it's helpful, you know, even if it's just as a one-time consultation, just to make sure that um, you get the input uh, from someone who, who really specializes in this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to have you give us some background information on your clinical trial um, in regards to how it came to be and a brief overview of the medications that are used. Sure. You know, I, I should, you know, before we get into that, one of the big advancements in the last five years is that um, there has been a new drug combination that was approved specifically for older adults with AML. So, you know, I told you that the historic standard has been azacitidine or decitabine. Um, and uh, just a couple years ago, a study compared azacitidine by itself versus azacitidine plus, a, plus an oral drug, a pill called venetoclax. And um, uh, uh, venetoclax is a drug that's taken once a day, and it targets a protein called BCL2. And it turns out BCL2 is a very important protein in cancer cells. Um, it's sort of, you know, we think of cancer cells as the off switch being broken. So they're stuck in the on phase, and they keep dividing and, uh, and dividing. And, and the BCL2 protein is part of what helps that on switch Stay stuck, and so um, this drug venetoclax actually targets the BCL2 protein and allows the cancer cell to, to turn off essentially and go through its regular sort of cell death pathway. And so when when venetoclax is combined with azacitidine, the response rates were actually doubled. So instead of 20 to 30 percent of patients going into remission, now with the combination, we're getting two-thirds of patients in, into remission. And instead of taking three or four months to find out if it works, this combination uh, uh, only takes one to two months. And so um, ever since around 2018, the new standard of care for treating older patients with AML has been the combination of this pill venetoclax with um, either IV or injected azacitidine or or decitabine. So um, that has been the new standard of care for uh, the last several years, um, but it doesn't get around the problem of patients having to come into uh, an infusion center for five to seven days out of every month in order to get their infusions. And so um, in the last couple years, um, one of the exciting developments has been um, uh, that of oral hypomethylating agents. And um, the, um, there are two FDA-approved oral hypomethylating agents. There's an oral decitabine as well as an oral azacitidine. Um, it's important to note that um, neither are approved for the treatment of newly diagnosed AML. Um, so the oral decitabine is approved for, for a different type of blood cancer. It's approved for 
uh, something called myelodysplastic syndrome uh, and a chronic leukemia, chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. Um, and the oral azacitidine is actually approved as a maintenance treatment for patients who get intensive induction like 7 plus 3, but then do not go on to get bone marrow transplant. And so there are now oral versions of these hypomethylating agents. Um, and this study in particular um, is the first study to look at oral decitabine in combination with, with, with venetoclax as, um, as a treatment for newly diagnosed older AML patients. And it's the first trial to study those two drugs in combination. Um, it is not FDA approved yet, and that's why we are doing this, this study, to look at whether um, this combination is safe and effective for patients with newly diagnosed AML. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear. Who, who would you say is the ideal candidate for this specific trial? That's a good question. So um, this trial um, is specifically for older or unfit patients with newly diagnosed AML. And so um, the way that is defined, at least in this trial um, and in, you know, several other trials before it, um, it's for patients who are uh, at least 75 years old. Um, uh, if they're not 75, year old, uh, 75 years old, then they have to um, have specific issues that might make them unfit for intensive chemotherapy. And like I mentioned before, that could include um, you know, problems with the heart, problems with the lungs, kidneys, liver, et cetera. Um, but there are pretty strict criteria that you have to meet if you're under the age of 75. Mm -hmm. So it's being, the trial's being run with you at Stanford. Are you aware of the other locations? Yeah, so at the moment, um, there are seven centers throughout the country that have this trial open. Um, uh, that includes uh, us here at Stanford, um, the University of Southern California, uh, Vanderbilt, Roswell Park, uh, University of Chicago, Cornell in New York, and MD Anderson in Houston. Um, I should point out that this is um, it's currently in the phase one portion, um, but it's about to go into the phase two portion uh, at which point it will expand to a lot of different centers, even outside of the United States. Um, and, you know, for those who aren't familiar with sort of how clinical trials work, um, there are typically three main phases of a clinical trial. And phase one um, is, is typically a small study um, where uh, drugs are, uh, are being given for the first time to people or they're being combined for the first time in people. And so um, this is the phase one where, where oral decitabine, which again is only approved for MDS and CMML, is being combined for the first time with, um, with this drug, uh, uh, venetoclax. And so um, we are looking mostly at this point to see is this combination safe and um, does it do drug levels in the blood seem similar to what you might expect when you give the IV fo form of the decitabine? Um, and assuming it looks safe and, um, and relatively equivalent, the phase two portion will then enroll a much larger group of patients um, and will look not only 
to see whether it's safe and whether the drug levels seem similar, but is the efficacy what you would expect uh, relative to the IV formulation in combination with, with venetoclax? So, you know, we will, um, as soon as the phase one portion is over, we will then uh, hopefully look to see whether we get the same sort of two-thirds response rate uh, in newly diagnosed older AML patients. You read my mind about explaining the trial differences. I think that's really helpful for everyone to know where we are and where it's moving to. So that was great. Yeah. Um, and so, so just, just to be thorough, so phase three typically is a very large study um, where half the people get a placebo and half the people get the actual drug. And so in both phase one and phase two, um, uh, everyone gets gets the drug. Um, and then phase three typically is the kind of study where it's randomized and half the people don't, don't get the same treatment. Mm -hmm. So while we're on this subject, to, to move a drug from where it is currently in phase one to FDA approval, can you give us a time estimate of, of how long that may take? <laughs> Um, the short answer is no. Um, it, <laughs> it can be it can be very hard to predict um, how long it will take to get a drug approved. You know, sometimes um, drugs, especially if they're being you know studied for the first time, you know, if it's a brand new drug, um, you know, it can take years and years to go from you know uh, studying it in the lab putting it into people for the first time and then getting it into a big randomized study. And, you know, especially in a disease like AML where it's relatively rare, um, you can imagine that it's hard to, you know, find hundreds and hundreds of patients to enroll in, in these, in these clinical trials. So, you know, unlike uh, things like breast cancer where, you know, you can put a thousand people on a trial within a pretty short time, you know, in, in AML, it can take a while. Um, that being said, um, it has been a very exciting time for, um, for patients with AML in that uh, since 2017, we've actually had nine new drugs approved. And so I think there, is, um, uh, there has been some progress in figuring out ways to get drugs approved in a more expeditious manner. And, um, you know, I think that um, if uh, everything goes well with these studies, um, there's, a, there's a possibility that we could see an approval for this combination, you know, potentially within the next couple of years. Um, it probably wouldn't be in the next six months or the next 12 months, but I think um, it's not too far in the future. The advancement in drug development drug development in AML has just been so explosive and exciting to see. Um, but I could see how if you're dealing with a, a newly diagnosed population, how enrollment may be difficult. Do you see that in, in practice with, with patients maybe not necessarily wanting a clinical trial up front or is it, is, does that not matter? Um, I think it does matter. You know, there are a lot of challenges to 
clinical trial enrollment, not just in AML, but I think in AML it's actually particularly difficult because this is a this is a relatively fast-moving type of cancer. Um, people are generally feeling pretty sick when they're diagnosed, and so you know there, there's often not a lot of time to sort of you know explore options and kind of you know travel around to see to see what's out there. So um, you know there are there are challenges. Um, I think, you know, as exciting as the advancements in AML have been over the last several years, you know, I would argue that we still have a long ways to go to until, you know, we can sit back and say we're really doing a great job. You know, I, um, you know, we haven't really talked about the fact that these treatments for older AML aren't really thought to be curative treatments. So, um, sort of the way that these drugs work by kind of changing the signal in the cancer cells, um, you know, we think only probably works as long as you keep doing these cycle after cycle after cycle. And, um, you know, I have patients now who have been on this treatment for three plus years, which is great, but, you know, still on average, um, you know, people with older AML are still only living in the you know, one to two year range average. And um, so I think we have a long ways to go before we can pat ourselves on the back. And that's why I think, you know, participating in, in clinical trials, whether it be in the newly diagnosed setting or once the leukemia comes back, I think it's very, very important. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that you said that. I think that's super important too. Um, so as you mentioned, this is already an FDA-approved therapy for MDS, um, which can be a precursor condition to AML, and it's, the medication is called Encovi. Is, is it going to have the same name when it's, when it's hopefully approved for AML? Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the drug's previous name, and it's still referred to um, as ASTX727, that's sort of what it was called as it was being studied. It's now, um, now that it's approved in MDS and CMML, it does have this brand name Encovi, which I, I, I assume would be the same name, whether it's being used for MDS or um, if and when it gets approved for AML, it will still keep the same name. Um, I should say that I, there's no, uh, I'm not being sponsored by any of these companies, uh, so they, uh, all of this is my my own personal uh, personal opinion, but um, yeah, I think um, uh, if and when it does get approved for AML, uh, uh, it would it would keep the same uh, the, the same brand name. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, IV decitamine as a current treatment for AML, and now we have this new oral D-cytabine. Um, do we know if there's any differences between the two? Well, so the way that the oral D-cytabine got approved for MDS and CMML is really sort of interesting the way that they did the study is they gave, um, they gave some people oral D-cytabine for the first cycle then they gave them IV decitabine for the second cycle. 
And in another group of people, they gave IV decitabine for the first cycle and then oral decitabine for the second cycle. And in, in all those patients, they measured the blood levels of the decitabine and showed that they were essentially the same. Um, whether you got the IV or you got the oral, whether you got one before the other um, or the other or vice versa, drug levels were the same. And so that's how it got approved in MDS. Um, what we don't, I mean, the, the, the whole purpose of this trial is um, to make sure that the same thing holds true in AML, that, um, that when you combine this oral decitabine with another drug, that there's no interaction between the two drugs such that levels of one are increased or, de or, or, or decreased. And that's what we're looking at in the phase one study to make sure that the levels are sort of in the ballpark of what we would expect. Um, you know, I think the expectation is, because we know that at least um, by itself in MDS or CMML that the, the drugs behave very similarly, um, I think it would be surprising if um, we saw a big difference in how this drug worked when you combine it in, uh, in AML with, with venetoclax. But that's, that's why we're doing the study, and that's why, you know, even though each of these drugs are FDA-approved um, outside of this context, um, you know, people shouldn't be uh, inclined to start doing this outside of the context of a trial until we understand that it is safe and effective. And, you know, the hope is that we get this answer pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we have an oral form, um, I want to talk about the benefits of an oral medication over an IV medication. What are, what are some of the benefits to the patient? Yeah, you know, I think there are two main benefits that I can see. And, you know, the first one is the most important. And that's that, you know, unfortunately, like I said, you know, at this present day and age, we are, we are not curing the majority of older AML patients. So the goal of treatment really is to maximize both the quantity of life, so, you know, extend people's lives, but also, you know, extend lives that are that are worth living, that are um, that are fulfilling, um, and don't involve spending, you know, a third of of your life in the infusion center. Um, and so, you know, it ends up that with the IV formulations, you know, patients are coming at least five or seven days out of every month um, to the infusion center. And for all the patients out there who have um, who have undergone treatment, you know, they know it's it's not as simple as just walking in, getting your infusion, and then heading home. Um, there's a check-in. There's a wait. Uh, you know, my clinic, you know, I'm always running late, and I apologize to any of my patients out there who have had to wait to, to see me. But, you know, there's blood draw. There's waiting for the results. There's waiting for the pharmacy to make the drug. And, you know, all these things add up such that when you go in for your infusion, this could be a half-day or an all-day thing. And so, um, you know, I see as one of the principal advantages of this uh, as a quality of life thing, that um, you're spending less time at a cancer center and more time with your family or doing things that you want to do. And, um, you know, I think um, until we find a cure for this, which, you know, we are 
working on and hopefully we'll find soon. Um, until that day comes, I think, you know, we as healthcare providers need to pay more attention to, um, you know, a patient's day-to-day quality of life. And so I think this would uh, be a huge stride towards, you know, the, the sort of quality of life piece. Um, you know, the other part of not having a, a, an intravenous drug is that, you know, all of our patients have special IVs that, you know, either are permanent or semi-permanent that they walk around with. And so um, to be able to have a pill form and not have to have any kind of, you know, port or pick line, a pick line is a, is a special IV that gets inserted into the arm and can stay there for several weeks or months um, to, to eliminate the need for those, I think would also be um, both an improvement in quality of life for patients, also decrease the risk of those things getting infected. And so um, at least to start out, it's a, it's a quality of life issue. On the other side of the coin, are there ever times when an oral therapy might not be appropriate for someone? Um, well, you know, first we have to make sure that these are just as effective as the IV formulations. So, so you know, um, this is all contingent on us getting the results of this study. Um, so until we can show that the all oral version is just as effective, then um, then I think it's hard to say. Um, you know, there are patients for whom oral treatments might not be ideal. Um, you know, there are certainly patients that may have trouble sort of remembering to take their pills. Um, uh, and so for that kind of patient, maybe coming in on a routine basis to get their IV treatment. Um, but, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, that, that the venetoclax pills are sort of part of the standard treatment now. And so um, I'm not sure that would be a big issue. Um, there, there is the rare patient that may have some sort of, uh, some sort of issue absorbing drugs, um, you know, whether they have some sort of gastrointestinal issue, um, maybe they have trouble swallowing pills. And for those patients, it still may be more appropriate to use an IV formulation. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit more about venetoclax now. Um, and you did a really good job of explaining what it is and how it works as a BCL2 inhibitor. Um, I want to know what the thought process is in combining it with oral D-cytabine. Um, are researchers thinking of kind of testing it with any drug as a combination, or is there a certain reason why it may be be added to drugs as combinations? Yeah, you know, as it turns out, venetoclax um, is useful in a wide range of different blood cancers. So um, we use it in chronic, in chronic leukemias. We are using it now in multiple myeloma. Um, really, it, it has um, proven to be very effective against a wide range of blood cancers. And that's because this BCL2 protein really is sort of a master regulator of, uh, of cancer cell life and death. And so, um, you know, whether it's AML or CLL or uh, MDS, uh, as it turns out, all, all of these blood cancer cells um, tend to rely on this BCL2 expression um, to make decisions whether those cells live or die. And so 
Um, by itself, um, in AML, um, it's not all that effective. Um, maybe about a 20% response rate as a as a single agent. Um, so, you know, both the hypomethylating agents and venetoclax by themselves, relatively modest response rates. But the combination uh, seems to synergize in a way that makes it much more effective. Um, I think uh, one of the next steps and what a lot of people are are looking at now is what if instead of just the, the, the combination of these two drugs, what if you add a third drug to it? W- w- would that help make it even more effective and uh, keep patients in remission longer? Um, the main uh, problem with that is that, you know, anytime you add another drug, you're, you're adding side effects. And, you know, we haven't really talked about sort of the, the side effects on this treatment, but sort of the, the main thing that all patients uh, should expect if they're getting this combination is that their blood counts will go down. Um, both of these drugs independently cause lower blood counts, but when you put them together, they can cause especially low blood counts. And especially in the first cycle or two before the leukemia goes into remission, we, uh, we monitor patients very closely, typically twice a week, um, checking their labs to make sure that they don't need need transfusions. Um, and so, you know, I think um, uh, we we sort of joke about adding venetoclax to to everything, but you know, um, there there's always sort of a a downstream consequence. And so, I think we're still working on figuring out what is the optimal dosing, what's the 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 best combination. Should we add a third drug? All of these are, are ongoing questions, and um, you know certainly there are trials here and elsewhere that are looking to answer some of those questions. I'm really glad you brought up the side effect conversation. That's really important for people to know. Um, but I'm I'm curious now that you bring up adding a third drug. Is there a specific class of drugs that that are being considered or or looked at more in trials as as being that third addition? Um, well, there there are a couple big ones that come to mind. Um, so, you know, one of the nice things about about venetoclax and the hypomethylating agents is that it seems like it works across a relatively broad range of types of AML. And when I say types of AML, you know, everybody's AML is a little bit different. And they're made different typically by the specific mutations that are in the leukemia cells. And, um, but, you know, regardless of the type of mutation in the cells, it's a pretty effective combination. Um, there are a couple types of mutations that make it a little less effective. Um, uh, one in particular is AML with a mutation in FLT3 or FLT3. Um, and there are drugs that we now have that can specifically target that FLT3 gene. And so, um, you know, one of the, I think, sort of popular thoughts is, well, what if you um, added one of these other targeted inhibitors to this combination or, or perhaps even substituted one of the two drugs for a more targeted inhibitor? Um, we are also uh, about to open... Uh, a trial that uses um, this combination of a hypomethylating agent and 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 venetoclax in combination with an immunotherapy drug 
uh, a drug called magrolimab, um, which actually was developed here at Stanford, um, to see if by adding an immunotherapy to the combination, if that improves the uh, the outcomes for for patients. But you know, I think in general, adding uh, a third drug that's a that's a targeted inhibitor of various mutations. There are several out there that are approved um, uh, versus uh, either an immunotherapy drug or a more traditional chemotherapy drug. Those are all things that are being looked at. Wow. That's so interesting. I have so many more questions, but I want to make sure that we have time at the end for everyone else to ask their questions. Um, so I'm going to try to wrap it up with my questions here, but I want to ask you one more thing, which I feel is important. Um, this is one of our very first radio shows, so I think it would be great if you could provide our listeners any advice you may have for patients who are looking to get enrolled in a clinical trial. What are some important things they should know or consider when they're going this route? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I think, um, you know, patients often struggle with sort of how do I find clinical trials and how do I know if a clinical trial is right for me? Um, there is a sort of master site for all of the clinical trials in the country, um, which is clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V. Um, but, you know, it can be hard for patients to navigate that. Um, it's just sort of a kind of a directory of all the clinical trials available. Um, I would say for most um, patients, um, it's hard for them to travel outside of their sort of regional area um, to enroll on a clinical trial. And um, most clinical trials require that certain procedures be done at the main center. And so if you're looking at a trial in New York, but you live in Texas, then that, that might be hard um, for you to do. And so, you know, if you live in California, in Northern California, for example, you know, you, um, my advice would be to check out Stanford, check out UCSF, check out UC Davis, centers that are close enough by that you might be able to travel back and forth should you need to, you know, a couple times a month. Um, some trials may only require once a month or even less frequent, but some, you know, like this trial of, of oral dystidamine and 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 venetoclax, at least in the first two cycles, you know, we're seeing patients at least once a week, if not twice a week. And so, um, you know, part of it is um, is distance to the center. Um, I think um, it's also helpful, you know, if you do meet with an AML specialist, you know, typically they will have a sense of, you know, what trials are out there. And, um, you know, even if a trial is not available at that particular center, you know, if there is something that's really worth traveling for, they may be able to sort of point you in the right direction. Yeah, that's that's really good insight to have. Um, while we're talking about finding clinical trials, um, I'd like to mention that HealthTree for AML has actually created an AML-specific clinical trial finder tool, um, which is designed to simplify and personalize your trial search. We recognize that, as you mentioned, this is a very tedious, overwhelming, and difficult process. So um, this tool is, is really help, helpful in, in making it less overwhelming. So currently, you can use this tool to filter AML trials by age group, phase, treatment type, genetic targets, location, 
Um, and something really exciting is that soon the search will be even more personalized by taking into account your specific health information so that only the trials where you meet the inclusion criteria will show up. Um, this tool will help patients sift through hundreds of trials and narrow the search down to a more manageable handful to look through. Um, so you can find this clinical trial finder tool on our website at healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash clinical dash trials. Um, so now I'd like to open it up for caller questions. If you have a question about Dr. Manis' research or anything we discussed today, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press 1 on your keypad. Looks like I already have a question here, so I'm going to unmute the caller whose number ends in 1034 to ask your question now. Hi, Dr. Manis. Thank you so much for taking the time. This this is going to be an amazing series of um, shows for patients to learn more about AML, so I'm super excited about it. So thank you so much for taking the time to do it. Um, I just had a question. You walked us through the clinical trial process. You know, phase one is mainly safety. Um, phase two is your testing kind of for how well it works, and then phase three, you're comparing it to something else. Um, I think in some of the other diseases, blood cancer specifically, sometimes the FDA has been getting better and better and sometimes even approving after phase two. Do you see that happening in AML or do you hope that that will end up happening in AML, especially when there's this big unmet need? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think we have already seen um, drugs get approved based on not just phase two data, but actually big phase one data. You know, the the drug ivocidinib, um, which is a targeted inhibitor of the IDH1 gene, um, is only present in about 10% of all AML. So, you know, it's a rare subset of a rare disease. And so, you know, um, I, I participated in, in the phase one study where um, we enrolled, um, you know, well over 100 patients onto this trial from around the world. And based on those data, the FDA realized that, you know, it was going to be hard to get a much bigger study than this, you know, without waiting 10 more years. And so I think um, as long as we are um, conducting the studies um, in a way that is ethical um, and consistent, um, that certainly the FDA seems more open to uh, to approving drugs that seem particularly promising and safe. And so, um, I think, for example, it's possible that this combination of oral dystidabine and, and, and venetoclax, if it shows in phase two, that it looks just as effective um, uh, as the IV formulation without any other safety concerns. I think it's very possible that it could get approved as a combination off of phase two data. Um, so I, I, am, I am encouraged by the slew of, of new approvals over the last several years and the sort of more creative thinking that is happening at the FDA now. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. So on, one more question. For clinical trials, how do you get, I don't know how many AML patients end up being seen in general oncology, in the general oncology setting, but how do you get the word out to these trials um, to the general oncologist? So, I mean, you're trying to make this, like you said, you're trying to make this really fast treatment decision for a newly diagnosed patient, and it might be better than, <clears throat> than standard of care 
But how do you let the general oncologist know that you have this trial running for that that might be yeah. a good option for their patients? Yeah, it's you know it's it's hard. You know, um, I think everyone in healthcare at the moment is stretched thin um, and, and overworked, and you know probably burnt out to some degree after everything that's gone on over the last eighteen months. And so, um, trying to reach people and you know take an extra second to sort of think about something, I think can get harder and harder. But, you know, we, we certainly do a lot of outreach. Um, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, um, constantly handing out my phone number and my email so that, you know, if anybody has any AML questions, they can reach me directly. Um, so I think part of it is, is just us on the academic side doing, um, doing our best to reach out to um, the oncologists in the community. I, you know, I think they're honestly grateful um, to have us as a resource, you know, I think, you know, they're seeing, you know, mostly, you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. So when they get, um, when they get an AML, they're often probably um, quite eager to talk to someone who has some more expertise in it. And so, um, uh, you know, part of us uh, is just us, you know, being accessible and, you know, reaching out to the community. I think, you know, this kind of platform is also very helpful, you know, in informing patients what's out there, uh, making sure that they're advocates for themselves and knowing that, you know, whenever they have, you know, a, you know, a, a, a serious diagnosis, especially of a rare type of cancer, that it's, you know, it's always good to try and seek out a second opinion. Um, and I think there's a misconception out there among patients that they're going to hurt their doctor's feelings if they request a second opinion. And I think, um, you know, we... We encourage our patients to get to get different opinions. You know, the most important thing is that a patient feels like they have the proper guidance and they're comfortable with the with the decisions that they're making. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing for AML patients. We really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate the call. Okay, let me look down the list to see if I have any more. If you'd like to ask a question, press one on your keypad. Okay, I have a question from caller whose number ends in 7401. I'll unmute you now. Hi, thanks for um, this information. It's been great. I'm wondering if you could go into some detail about what some of these drug combinations we've talked about, what, what you can expect with your blood counts? Yeah, so the combination uh, of a hypomethylating agent and, and, and venetoclax, like I said, the, the most common um, downstream effect is that the blood counts will get lower. And, you know, it's very common, especially in older patients with AML, um, that even before treatment, the blood counts are low. And so, um, you know, w we look at sort of three main blood counts, the white cells, the red cells, and the platelets. And, um, you know, the white cells are responsible for, for preventing infections. The red cells, which we typically measure via either hemoglobin or the hematocrit, those cells are responsible for carrying oxygen. And the platelets are responsible for, um, for, for, for preventing bleeding. And so, uh, you know, any or all of those may already be low when a person is newly diagnosed with with AML, um, but all three of those will go down um, once treatment starts. And typically, 
um, you know, will not improve until the third or fourth week, or maybe even later um, when the when the drugs start to start to kick in and, and the bone marrow starts to recover in in, in remission. But um, typically, the platelets and red cells will get low enough to the point um, where patients will need transfusions if they're not already requiring them at the time of diagnosis. And so, um, we will typically check twice a week. Um, with the expectation that, you know, at least once a week, patients will need um, a transfusion of red blood cells or, or platelets, typically, um, you know, in the second or third week of treatment. Okay, great. That's helpful information. One, one last quick question, um, and I suspect we may have talked about this a little bit, but just in, in your opinion, I mean, AML is a hard disease to have. What, what's the most proactive thing a patient can do to help get closer to a cure for everyone? What can a patient do to help get closer to a cure? Um, that's right. a great question. You know, I, I think, um, you know, participating in clinical trials is um, probably the most important thing. You know, all of the advancements that have been made over the last few years really have been made because of patients who are willing to uh, enroll on these trials. And, you know, often being in a clinical trial requires, you know, more frequent visits, more frequent tests than you might otherwise need if you were to just get sort of the, the standard treatment. Um, but really, you know, we are not going to um, make any more progress towards a cure unless we are able to study new and better treatments. And um, we can't study new and better treatments without the sort of altruism of patients who are willing to participate in clinical trials. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I don't see any more questions being asked, and it looks like we're getting really close to time. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Manis, for joining us today and letting us know that there's so much progress being made on the treatment of AML, especially for older individuals. We wish you all the best in your continued great work. Thank you so much, Katie. This was a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate the invitation to come talk to you guys. Thanks for listening to Health Tree for AML Radio. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.